You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 10th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. It's absolutely nothing new that generations have conflict. But I think perhaps in terms of, certainly in the West, the large divisions of wealth between these generations is perhaps making this relationship even more spiky than usual. My guests Alex von Tunzelmann and Josi Meckelberg will discuss whether the age of politicians really matters and whether the world's young leaders feel they need any advice from the old guard. We'll also look at the latest human development report from from the UN, which highlights growing inequality as a cause of protest movements around the world. And we also debate our favourite political nicknames. Plus, today, well-behaved teenage kids make firebombs, and there's little or no trust between the formerly well-regarded police force and the people they serve. Six months on since anti-government demonstrations began in Hong Kong, we look at what's changed and what remains the same. I am Marcus Hippi. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Jossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University, and by Alex von Tunzelmann, a historian, author and screenwriter. Let's begin by tackling an age-old question in politics, which is, does age matter at all? This week, Finland's Sanna Marin became the youngest prime minister at the age of 34, and Malaysia's Martyr Muhammad, the world's oldest serving premier, thinks she might need some guidance. The 94-year-old says Marin should ask old people for advice. Alex, what does this sound like to you? Do you agree with the Malaysian leader? Well, I mean, I think (laughs) broadly, of course, one would hope that all the generations would be able to work together and not just have these these huge tensions between each other. But yes, uh, there was certainly a bit of an element of the popular phrase, OK, boomer, um, (laughs) to the response to that. Although, of course, uh, Mohammed is much older than a boomer. I mean, he would he would count as the silent generation. But uh, but yes, there certainly seems to be at the moment an exacerbated tension. I mean, it, it's absolutely nothing new that generations have conflict. Um, but I think perhaps, you know, in terms of certainly in the West, the large divisions of wealth between these generations is, is perhaps making this relationship even more spiky than usual. Yossi, I guess asking for advice is never a bad idea. But what do you think? Does age really matter? You, know, you always ought to ask yourself if you want also to take the advice or just to listen to advice. I think, yeah, of course, your experience matters and it's good to hear from people that have experience. But this is kind of an old uh, question of how much you want actually to take advice from people that not necessarily succeeded in what they are doing, which is the case also here. You know, a young leader, and I think there is a trend right now, whether it's Trudeau in, in, in Canada or, or, or Macron in France, we have a generation, or in New Zealand, we have a generation of young leaders. I think they are more in touch with the young generation. And I think it's important, actually, the other way around, that the older leaders will listen to the youngster. Because we see, for instance, what happens in the Middle East, whether it's in Iraq or Lebanon or in other countries, Algeria, the demonstration of you, there is a big divide between what the old see as the future of our world and what the youth. Youth is struggling more and more and they voice their concerns. You know, we see it when it comes to jobs, when it comes to uh, to uh, to getting, you know, under the property ladders and in other issues, starting a 
family and those who are sitting comfortably and you mentioned uh, you know, at the age of 94, probably is quite comfortable. And the question if he can connect with the young generation. Alex, you mentioned this phrase we've been hearing quite regularly in recent months, OK Boomer. Why does it seem, why are we hearing that now, first of all? And secondly, as you mentioned, why does it seem that the, the question of age seems to be more relevant now than maybe before? I think, I mean, it's come up, so it, it's sort of come up as a response on websites like Twitter uh, to usually to kind of um, statements that seem uh, to to a younger audience, to Generation X or Millennials, seem somewhat entitled on behalf of the boomer generation, you know, such as why don't you simply stop eating avocado toast and then you could afford a house, uh, being a classic one. Um, and, and, you know, these sorts of things elicit this response of OK Boomer, which is a kind of eye roll, I suppose, by the younger generation. But there's been a very angry back clash against that from some boomers who feel that it's, you know, a sort of a very rude, uh, discriminatory phrase. Although I have to say, I think it's quite mild, actually, as these things go. Um, but obviously, there has been an angry response. But of course, the fun thing is that to any angry response, and some of them can't, you know, well, it's all okay, boomer, until uh, until you want to borrow the credit card or buy a house, to which, of course, the response again is okay, boomer. Um, so it's sort of can form an ultimate cycle where you just keep responding that to... In a way, I think the young generation eat avocado toast because they know they'll never buy a house. So at least right. enjoy enjoy the time while those who are older accumulated all the wealth which probably relate to our next topic, <laughs> accumulated so much, so much wealth. So I said, at least, you know, I can afford avocado toast even if I can't afford, afford the house. And I think this is one of the reasons that you live the day, you know, the older generation, probably mm-hmm. I represent in this panel, could actually afford buying a house. You could, you know, on a salary or two in a, with a mortgage, you can start progressing in this sense and start a family. I look at the younger generation, the gap between what you earn what you can take as a mortgage, what you can save and get into the property ladder is massive. So, hey, let's just enjoy life as it is. Shall we return to where we started? So the age of leaders, I'm wondering, Alex, for example, would you rather listen to a 94-year-old leader or a 34-year-old leader then? Well, of course, it would depend on much more than just their age, one would hope. But I do think that uh, it's a fair point to say that probably a 34-year-old is more is closer to the average age than a 94-year-old of, of most people in society. So, you know, but that doesn't necessarily uh, override every other concern, obviously. Um, I do think that um, Yossi is right that this kind of younger generation of leaders, people like Jacinda Ardern, do seem somewhat more in touch with the changing world. And I think there is a danger because the boomer generation is so large, hence the name boomer. It was baby boom originally in the West um, post-war that actually that generation kind of outweighs the younger people in voting terms. Um, and it's you know a strong argument in this country, perhaps for lowering the voting age to 16 or 17. And they're way more conservative because they can't protect their privileges that the next generation is not going to have. I think to your question, you know, who you listen to, it depends who is the 94 and who is the 34, <laughs> what, what, what they can actually offer, what they can put on, on, the, on the table. But it's actually the other issue here. As we live longer, we'll have this gap of age between those who live until 100 and those who are in power, probably with the kind of life they're entertaining, we live longer and stay in power longer, and the young generation. And how you bridge between the two, what generation could bridge when it comes to ideas and policies and the way you live life, it's, it's one of the challenges ahead. Do you have any suggestions on how to solve that issue, how to, how to reconnect these different generations? 
What, just in a sentence? <laughs> I, I, well, as I said before, I think the vote, lowering the voting age is one possibility because it kind of slightly helps to redress the balance. I think also getting people, younger people feeling more connected with politics. I mean, what we see, for instance, in this country is loads of emphasis on pensions and things like this and, you know, very little on a younger generation who probably aren't going to get pensions at all. Um, and, you know, the only way really that you can address this is by participation. So it's about really trying to encourage and reward youth participation in politics. What's interesting is that it actually feels feels like there is a new generation of young leaders popping up in different countries. Do you think they have a power to change the world if they see the world a bit differently? I think gradually when the, the numbers are growing of young people that are in position of power, obviously they will have their influence of the kind of changes. It also, you know, in a way we live in the world that we have some disruptors in different in different parts of the world. The more this disruption affects these young people, there may be better chance that they will enter into politics because right now many young people say, oh, we can't change anything. What we are seeing is what's going to happen. Where is the hope? When they start seeing that actually the, the quality turns also in quantity of, of leadership, and they see, hey, you can change a little bit in New Zealand. The language is mm -hmm. different. The attitude is different about diversity. For instance, they can change in, in different parts of the world. The thinking is different. Maybe this will encourage more young people to and have. But of, at the same time, you don't want to neglect the other side. What you need is a national discourse, which will be inclusive between everyone and to see what are the concerns between the young, the, the middle-aged and, and, and the old and from every other aspect of society. Do you think the example of Finland reveals how a country can benefit from having a young leader? There's been an incredible amount of press about Sanna Marin, who is now the new Finnish prime minister. Do you think, do you, think you see my home country of Finland in a different <laughs> light now, for example? Well, I mean, I think it's very early to say that. She's only been in the job for 10 minutes. Um, yeah, 20, <laughs> so, you know, 24 hours. Yeah, 24 hours. We should probably give her a bit of a chance, I think, yeah. to see what difference it makes. It'll be very interesting to see, though, and I'm sure a lot of us will be watching. Well, at least you have all the attention of the world right now. We talk about it. I'm sure in many other places, all of a sudden... Finland is a focal point, so you can also highlight other aspects of the great nation of Finland. Alex von Tunzelman and Jossi Meckelberg there will be back in just a moment, but first here is Monaco's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we have been following today. Thank you, Marcus. In the U.S., House Democrats have officially unveiled two articles of impeachment against President Donald Trump, charging him with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. They've accused him of violating the Constitution when pressing Ukraine for help in the 2020 election. When speaking on the floor of the House, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said they had no choice. Chile's Air Force says a military plane has disappeared en route to Antarctica. The aircraft had 38 people on board, including 17 crew members and 21 passengers. The mission was traveling to provide logistical support to a military base on Antarctica's King George Island. Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte says his coalition government should put aside differences and work together to pursue a radical agenda, including income tax reform. Conte also told the country's media that some members of the coalition are using it as a vehicle to further their own political ambitions. And Sydney could soon be home to many of Australia's tallest buildings. This follows a decision by the state and city governments to allow structures to reach a maximum height of 330 metres. Residential use in skyscrapers will be capped, which has led to concerns that the city's nighttime economy will suffer. Those are some of the headlines we are following. Now back to you, Marcus. 
Thanks, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I am Markus Hippi, here with Alex von Tunzenman and Jossi Meckelberg. Next, we turn to a story that was covered in today's edition of the Monocle Minute. The United Nations Development Programme has released its annual Human Development Report, which ranks countries based on things such as life expectancy and education. Since the first index was published in 1990, there's been a significant increase in human development around the world, but that has been slowing since 2010. At the same time, this year's report focuses on inequality and finds that the rise of protests around the world can be linked to a failure to address the growing divide between have and have-nots, covering everything from the cost of a train ticket to demands for political freedoms. Alex, what are the biggest lessons to be learned from this report? Well, these, I think these reports are kind of incredibly interesting and useful and, of course, contentious in many ways because there's always the question of how and what we measure uh, um, and, you know, which how we measure those things that we measure. I mean, there are lots of other indices of development, including, you know, things like uh, measuring things like freedom of speech, which, of course, is very debatable what constitutes that and what doesn't. Um, even measuring, there's a World Happiness Index, which I believe Finland is number one. You'll be pleased to know, Marcus. Um, I think so in too. the World <laughs> Happiness, but of course, that's self-reported and therefore, again, can be very contentious. You often find that countries like Saudi Arabia, for instance, comes quite high up in the World Happiness Index. Um, and perhaps that's because, at least in part, people are slightly scared of saying they're not happy. Um, so the Development Index from the UN is actually based on lots of different indicators across all sorts of, uh, of economic and social um, bases. And I think what it perhaps tells us, it, it gives us a sort of very broad overall picture of the direction the world is moving in. And I agree that I think it's somewhat worrying that inequality does seem to be on the rise. And this does relate to our previous conversation. It's not just generational, but it is generational. But it's also these sort of very big differences that are coming up between rich and poor. And we are seeing... Some politicians begin to talk about this and address this even in the centre. People like Elizabeth Warren in the US, who, of course, is considered left-wing in the US, but would be considered quite centrist in Europe <laughs> generally, talking about a wealth tax on billionaires, for instance. Um, but it's interesting to me that when this comes up, it's still very, very controversial to talk mm. about. Um, there's been you know, quite a lot of pushback to that sort of idea. Um, and it's a question, really, of is there anything we can do to address it? Because, of course, these indices uh, are merely a... a a quantification. They're not actually in and of themselves any kind of remedy. Yossi, what do you think? How useful are these kind of rankings and reports? Do they make a difference? I think actually they are very important because if you look at the approach to development, if you go back to post-1945, you will look at development, GDP, income per capita. You made more money, generally you are more developed. Then in the 1990s came the change with the Human Development Index which look more at the, the individual, not on, on, on societies and all, and economies as all. And you started measure different things. For instance, gender equality. Do we see more women, for instance, in parliament? Or as executive position within the economy? You look not only at life expectancy, you look at, for instance, one of the indicators about death at birth. So you try to look at the entire, you know, human experience in this and try to, of course, number one, number two, does it really make a big difference? You know, Norway always come number one, and I think Switzerland is, 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 is coming second. But then when you go between high development to the medium development to the low development, then you start seeing, for instance, the difference in life expectancy. You can also correlate between the different indicators. For instance, if 
it comes to food, if it comes for equality, it comes for human rights. So you see it, you look at human being in a very holistic approach, and then you start work. It gives you a tool to see where the world needs to improve. And I think in this sense, it's very important. You know, is this the answer for everything? Obviously not. But it, it should make politicians think, where can I succeed? Where can I improve if they want to? Exactly. There may not be an immediate reaction from, say, governments, but at least this kind of reports, I guess they get people talking and thinking. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, certainly, especially when there are kind of outlying indicators such as obviously the U.S., for a very developed country has terrible access to healthcare. And, yeah. you know, there are things like this that can come out of these reports if they are holistic, as you say, and, you know, can be correlated across lots of different data um, that actually can tell us something about the patterns of how these social enterprises are funded, how how government is funded, how all, and how these policies can be addressed. You know, in a way, it was also the precursor for the Millennium Goals and the Sustainable Goals. If you think about this report, they came before that, and actually I think they were, in a way, trigger or an accelerator to to actually come up with the Millennium Goals, which are more specific goals. That's what we expect the entire world to achieve by 2015. Okay, a lot of them achieve, not everything, and then move to the Sustainable Goals by mm. 2030. So you can see the relation, how it makes policy makers to take a stand to make a difference in this sense. Alex, as you mentioned a moment ago, there are different ways of measuring how well countries are functioning Do you have a preferred system? What should we actually measure? What should we look at? Well, there's obviously no simple argument to uh, answer to that. I do think the Human Development Index is very useful for the reason Yossi said is that it actually brings together so many different factors that you can correlate because, you know, it is inadequate to look at any one measure and particularly to focus just on the economy. I think in terms of a lot of people's individual lives, they may well find that, you know, things like healthcare are of significantly more daily concern. Access to social care, a growing concern. And again, if we're talking about a generation problem that's something that's really coming up as the boomer generation starts to need you know social care nursing care um and also uh, status of women yossi also mentioned gender equality but also you know the status of women and minority rights are also very important a lot of countries you know have might have uh, all sorts of positive economic indicators but not necessarily protection of minorities um so you know there are, what you need actually is as broad as possible a collection of, of data and then and then it's about kind of you know finding analysts and economists and historians and so on to pick through it and uh, and analyze it and make some sense of it well let's continue now finally today what's in a nickname for a politician it can mean everything but what about when that nickname is abusive and applied by a foreign adversary that's certainly true in the case of Donald Trump who has recently been labeled as a heedless and erratic old man by a senior official in North Korea. Yossi, you can't deny that this wouldn't be entertaining, but there is definitely a more serious undertone to it, isn't there? Of course, Syrian Monocle will never give bad names to any politicians. We are too civilized and too polite. But, you know, at the end of the day, you look at the kind of the, 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 the language between leaders now. And I'm sure behind closed door it's always been the case in, in, in history. There is not always great chemistry between politicians and between diplomats. And, you know, I, I can think of my own experience of sitting in all sorts of meetings and I know that negotiators didn't like each other. But between this and make it public and start to insulting each other, and how do you go back from it? Mm-hmm. Now, luckily, I think if you have someone like Donald Trump with such a thick skin, it will just 
probably won't be affected by it, but it can affect the way they negotiate. And bear in mind, they are talking about nuclear weapons. They are not talking about the exchange of culture, not I'm devaluing this. They are talking about nuclear powers. They're talking about how to disarm. And this, this is kind of between rocket men and the other, you know, insults that exchange. It can, it, I think at the end of the day, it's a hindered, diplomatic hinder to reach an agreement. When you look at this kind of public announcement and the language politicians, for example, use in, in the public eye, it's, it's often very considered. So, so if we hear from a senior official in North Korea that Donald Trump, for example, is a heedless and erratic old man, what are they actually trying to communicate over there? Well, I mean, you know, it is a provocation, obviously. I don't think they think of it <laughs> in any other way. Um, but I would disagree with one thing Yossi said, and I think Trump has a very thin skin. I think we saw that when he stormed out of NATO last week and all this. You know, he's actually, he's somebody who can dish it out but not take it back, I think. And so, you know, he was, I think he was very upset when uh, when the North Koreans insulted him back and allegedly called him a dotard, uh, for instance. Um, although, actually, I hear from Korean journalists that was mistranslated in the Korean phrase, in fact, means old, old beast loon. Lunatic, um, which I personally sounds better. much better yes, <laughs> as yeah. a nickname. Um, so I think you know there is an attempt here to kind of you know it, it's bravado and machismo, and there's a lot of kind of muscling yeah. up and showing off, and that's very very dangerous when we're talking about nuclear weapons, obviously. Um, but I mean, it is again nothing new. And I thought, as a historian, I thought you might like me to bring in a few a few names of, of kings in the past because, you know, some poor people had to cope with being called Charles the Fat, Joanna the Mad, Alfonso the Slobberer, um, yeah. Piero the Unfortunate, and indeed a poor Viking called Aestein the Fart. So I'm afraid it's nothing new that politicians and leaders insult each other. Amazing. Um, Yossi, do you think politicians can benefit from nicknames if they're a bit more positive than that? Yeah, I assume some of them can be kind of uh, more flattering than, than, than others. And actually, I can take your point about, that I think sometimes you have thick skin in the sense that it will come back and say, okay, we'll still negotiate. But sometimes you're right, he also storms and he takes it very personally. And as a leader, you can't take personally too much uh, this sort of, of insult. But you see, for instance, I think when people are not, you know, not using even the official name, you know, no one called Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein. It was in everyone's just Saddam, like, you know, is the neighbor next door, but he was not a f- very friendly one. We, we, we use the term Bibi, you know, is okay actually name and it was in, in a way terms of endearment maybe not now as much as it used to be before the indictment so sometimes it kind of it's make more familiar it's less distance if you have this kind of uh, nicknames have you had your own nicknames yes, by so the way boris in this country is saying that boris johnson is uh, often known by the media just as boris even though yeah. actually his friends and family call him al i think he's actually called alexander johnson yeah. um but this has become almost a persona and there is i think there's a danger in that as there is with bb and various other people of it becomes over familiar so i think it's quite important that the media call him johnson and Netanyahu yeah. and so on, rather than or prime minister yeah absolutely i mean <laughs> something that kind of conveys a bit of neutrality. Have you had your own nicknames? Oh. You mean the one that we can share on the video? (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, Yossi wants me to go first. Um, I mean, yes, at various points. Well, I think if you've got a long name like mine, Alex von Tunzelman, I mean, everybody calls me AVT as a result because who can possibly be expected to get through that mouthful? I don't think I'm important enough to have any nickname. <laughs> <laughs> but people call me Yossi instead of Yossi, yes. <laughs> Yossi Megelberg and Alex von Tunzelman, thank you very much. In a moment, we'll hear a view from our Hong Kong bureau chief as the city-state marks six months since the pro-democracy uprising. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned.
This is Monocle's House View. I am Markus Hippi. Finally today, our Hong Kong bureau chief reflects on six months of Hong Kong's massive pro-democracy uprising. Some changes are difficult to spot, especially when they happen right in front of us. For example, a close friend gaining weight or parents bringing up a new baby. Living in Hong Kong feels a bit like that right now. Dramatic events seem to happen every day. We acknowledge it, quickly adapt, and then accept it as the way it's always been. Sunday's march in Hong Kong felt very similar to the first big march on June the 9th, when hundreds of thousands of people from all walks of life took to the streets under blue skies. But if we pause for a moment to consider the changes, then the contrasts can appear quite stark. Back in June, the protests used to be about an extradition bill, and the chief executive Carrie Lam governed Hong Kong with a high level of autonomy from Beijing. Today, well-behaved teenage kids make firebombs, and there's little or no trust between the formerly well-regarded police force and the people they serve. Free Hong Kong graffiti now decorates the roads, while boarded-up shops and branches belonging to mainland Chinese banks and businesses line the protest route. Hong Kong has changed dramatically in the last half a year. And yesterday's six-month anniversary should provide a moment of reflection for all of us who call the city home. That was James Chambers, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage and researched by Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Steph Jungo and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design with Josh Fennert. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, that is at 1800 London time. I am Marcus Hippin. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>